0: Welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden. And as always, you can find us on social media, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash mediumcoolpod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram. We'll pop up and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Austin Glidden. You can also find me on Instagram at the same uh, handle, at Austin Glidden. You can also uh, find me on Letterboxd just search Austin Glidden, I'll pop up. Uh, Please, uh, you know, subscribe, follow, whatever it is, wherever you're listening to this, whatever it asks you to do to keep up with all the things, you should definitely do that with us. We really appreciate it. Review, rate, whatever you want to do. All of that helps us out. So uh, as I said last week, whenever I did the uh, 2021 Cram, I did five movies from uh, out of the bulk that I've had watched and Uh, yeah, I am going to set up a replay for today. I'm going to replay the Greg Binnick part one episode. Um, I might do part two in a couple of weeks, uh, depends on how things go. This has been an extremely busy week and this coming week is going to be an extremely busy week. So we'll see how much I actually get in to talk about. Um, I might have to do two back to back replays. I hate that. Guys, I wish I could give you new content. This has just been an exceptionally busy week, but it will calm down. Trust me, it definitely, definitely will, especially in December uh, until we get to Christmas, of course. But, you know, aside from that, though, it will calm down. So anyways, uh, all that said, uh, you know, I had a good time watching a few movies. I want to talk about uh, The Power of the Dog sometime soon. Uh, next time I do a 2021 Cram episode, I'm definitely going to talk about The Power of the Dog, but um, I've, I've watched uh, several others that I can touch on when the time comes. Um, I did actually get to watch uh, over the kind of Thanksgiving weekend from Thursday to Saturday. I was in uh, my hometown of Muncie, Indiana, visiting uh, family. And uh, I, I went to see my dad, who's been on the podcast. And uh, my grandpa lives with them now, too. And uh, I go to my grandpa's and I watch westerns uh, with him and my dad and whoever. Um, and I did an episode where uh, my kind of, I don't know, short reviews or whatever were on the westerns I watched with them. Uh, that was uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and 310 to Yuma. When I did those on the episode, a uh, past episode, that was what I did. So this time I watched Samuel Fuller's 40 Guns. And I'm not going to do a full review, but I'll just say um, I liked the movie. A little disappointed for a Samuel Fuller movie, seeing as how, like, Literally every Samuel Fuller movie I can think of, I adore. Like I haven't seen a bad thing from him, and I still haven't seen a bad thing from him. Forty Guns was okay, you know. I, I mean, it, you know, there there are three specific signature moments that I would say watch the movie at the very least for these uh, very effective, very awesome moments. Uh, the rest of it was just kind of a basic kind of B Western feel, to be honest. Um, and again. Not a bad movie at all. It was just uh, not really. I just wish it was better because it's Samuel Fuller, and dude, give me a break, man. He he's awesome. Um, I think full. I'm th- pretty sure Fuller did uh, pick up on South Street. I think that's the Fuller movie. Uh, I get some of his mixed up, but man, he he's done so many great movies though. Not just that, but he's he's just done a ton of great stuff. So big Fuller fan. I got to watch 40 Guns. I I bought it like an impulse buy during a Barnes & Noble, uh, you know, 50% off Criterion sale the last time in like the summer or whenever it was. And I just like paid 20 bucks or whatever, bought this Blu-ray, finally got around to seeing it. And again, a little disappointed because it's fuller, but uh, overall it was a, a decent experience. Loved watching it with my grandpa and my dad. That was always fun. Uh, so yeah, I got to fit in a few movies. Again, the Thanksgiving weekend was crazy. This weekend uh, we have this art fair that my wife and I are, um, you know, a part of. My wife's running the damn thing. I am. Uh, I'm just volunteering and helping. Uh, but literally every day this week, with the exception of uh, today, Tuesday. Uh, the day this drops, that is, uh, every day this week until Sunday, I have things going on with this art fair. So my hope is to get some more movies in, so that next week this will be a full episode. If not, it'd be the Greg Binnick part two. But the good news is things should calm down after that. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. Again, I apologize, guys. I really, really want some new content to come out. I really need to find some more time to cram this 2021 stuff because we are nearing the end uh, of the year and I need to get a lot of these in. Uh, And last year, I think we did it like the last week of January or something. I'll probably do the same thing again, just because I like giving us a little time. Yeah. We're like the last top 10 list of the year. I feel like at that point, But it gives someone like me who, yes, as a critic, I do get, like, pre-screeners and stuff, but not for everything. If I get in with, like, the Indiana Film Journalist Association guys and stuff, uh, if I get into that jam or whatever you want to call it, that group, group, makes me sound like I'm 70. But anyways, uh, you know, that organization, (laughs) whatever. If I get into the IFJA uh, I'll, I'll get a whole lot more. Uh, but with where I am now just as an independent film critic, basically, you know, you only get what you get. And so I have to sometimes wait for this shit to come out. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. Anyways, all that to say, uh, today's going to be a replay of my uh, conversation with Greg Bennett all the way back in episode 10. Uh, this was a main content, but I just wanted to bring this back up just to remind you how awesome Greg Bennett is, and I definitely have to have him back on. Um, but yeah, he, he's a great dude. I almost started a podcast with this guy. Who knows? Maybe it will happen sometime. It was so great. Uh, so anyways, this is Greg Benick. He is an awesome dude. You'll hear a lot about him if you don't know who he is. If you haven't been back to listen to episode 10, hey, I'm saving you a little bit of trouble. You can go back and listen, uh, to my intro if you want. I might talk about movies. Quite frankly, I don't even remember what's on that episode, but what I do remember is Greg Benick is awesome so I hope you guys enjoy it thank you for being patient with me and here is my conversation part one with Greg Bennick. I was in a bank called barricades this is the first time that uh, we met and uh, you guys are you by yourself you were doing spoken word stuff and you were touring with I believe glass hands do I have that correct
1: um, I think Glass Hands was playing, but I think I might have been on tour. I'm trying to think of who was on that specific tour. Yeah. It might have been Focused Minds, maybe. Was it Focused Minds? I can't remember. I,
0: I, I can't remember. the like. I was trying to find the flyer for it, and it's even though I have them backlogged somewhere because I like to keep all the flyers <laughs> for the shows I played, um, and it's gone. Anyways, whoever you were on tour with, you were doing Spoken Word, and I remember... Um, I remember that after we were finished playing, like, I had no idea who you were, by the way, not by name or anything. I had heard of Trial, but no one had told me, you know, Greg Bennett is from Trial, right? So I was just like, oh, cool. This dude's really nice. I thought you were just with one of the bands and, uh, you were, you were very gracious and kind. You came and complimented us. And then, uh, I remember like right before the final band, whoever you were touring with, you opened for them and you did this spoken word thing. And I expected it to be, uh like some sort of like slam poetry or something like I had no right, idea right, right, right. Yeah. what to expect. Um, but you got up there and you did essentially public speaking. I mean, that's, that's, it was just public speaking. Now, now some, uh, inside baseball on me here that you wouldn't know, I'm a public speaking instructor. So when I was listening to you, I'm like, this dude would get an A like, <laughs> like I was sincerely impressed with your speaking skills and uh that you actually had a message like you were trying to tell us something but you were doing it through storytelling which is another part of my history and I felt a connection with you in that moment and I want to get to what that message was eventually okay we're gonna put a pin in it but that's where we first met before we get to that pin though one thing I'd like to learn about you is just you know like you are from this hardcore band from the 90s trial um how, where did you grow up, and how did you get from there to loving hardcore music?
1: Okay, so I'm glad you asked, because credit where credit is due to start. The speaking ability, uh, I've often felt, is the result of doing it again and again and again and again, over 500 trial shows and other bands and whatnot. But also it's genetic, so credit where credit is due. Uh, my mom is a brilliant speaker, and she speaks... Not anymore, but she spoke professionally, semi-professionally, for quite a while, doing small events and whatnot. And the reason I bring her up is because the first time I went to see her speak was only about six or seven years ago. Now, you have to keep in mind, my mom at the time was 73 or so years old, Wow. and she was speaking on the topic of exercising as you age for, <laughs> at a, at a <laughs> hospital in rural Virginia and i called and i said mom hey i'm you know coming to visit you and dad i thought you know it'd be you know fun to to check in beforehand and she's like well gregory it'd be great you know you'll get to see me you'll get to see me speak if you're here cuz i have this event booked and i was like oh wow how how cute my mom is going to speak i had no <laughs> idea what she did right so we go get ready you know i get ready for my trip and she's saying you know yeah the event is sold out i'm very excited and i'm like what are you talking about it's sold out <laughs>
0: I love imagining so, your mom talking that exact way. It's all sold out. One hundred percent, like just like. So I, I
1: fly to the East Coast, and it turns out that this event is indeed sold out. It's at this hospital. They've sold tickets for I think two dollars a piece, and there's like a hundred people who bought tickets. And my mom sold this place out. I'm like, what the hell's happening? So. We walk in. I'm standing in the back of the room. I got in, right? Because I know the speaker. So I'm standing. <laughs> I'm standing
0: you got guest standing, listed.
1: <laughs> I got guest listed by my mom. So I'm standing in the back of the room, and the whole room is senior senior citizens. Um, and my mom is walking around. And you have to imagine this, like, little lady just, like, waving at her friends and being all sweet. And everyone's saying, hi, hi. And she's waving back. And she walks up to the front of the room, and they introduce her. Please welcome, speaking on exercising as we age, Diane Benick. And she puts her notes down and she looks up at the audience. And with the intensity of the most intense political speech you've ever (laughs) seen between songs at a hardcore show, this little lady who had been waving at her friends looks at this room of senior citizens, citizens and says, if you don't exercise as you age, you will fall down the stairs and your neighbors will read about you in the paper the next Week. <laughs> and that's your opening line. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? I felt like I was at a hardcore show. She went for 90 minutes, did not relent. 90 minutes of this intense, passionate, driving message of you have to exercise and why it's important. And at the end of it, I, I felt like like I was I was in an audience. Like I was ready to like take on the world and do sit-ups and exercise as I age and whatever. <laughs> But in that moment, I realized where it all came from in me, the speaking and the connecting and the storytelling. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm basically my mom. This is so cool. So credit where credit is due. Shout yeah. out to Diane.
0: That, that is uh, exceptionally awesome. And it's, it's interesting, though, that you only saw her for the first time like seven years ago or something. Like, how, how, how do you think that that influenced you prior? Has she always been kind of a communicator?
1: always a storyteller, always a communicator, always a connector. And when I was growing up, she was teaching aerobics. That was her thing. And people would flock to these aerobics classes because she was so dynamic. And and I remember going to one when I was about 17 and remember thinking, wow, she's really energetic and she's kicking my ass with the sit-ups and everything. But I'd never seen her do her actual talk. I just always taken it for granted. It's like, oh, it's my mom. It's going to be this mom talk. I don't even know what that means. But yeah, I'm, am telling you, 90, 90 minutes. And at the time, I think that my keynote speeches were were running like forty-five to sixty minutes max. Like at the time, I never could have thought about doing ninety. And I'm like, my seventy-three-year-old mother just totally schooled me in how to speak. This is unbelievable. But yeah, yeah it's where it, it's where it. You know, it was definitely a turning point moment for me. Dude, so thanks, thanks, mom.
0: Yeah, thank you Diane. <laughs> like um, because because you have influenced uh, or at least motivated or or I mean what other term uh, uplifted might be a word, you know, like that that's maybe a term I would use whenever I saw you there was something cuz you know wh- whenever you have can I ask how old you are, Greg? I'm
1: 48, 49.
0: All right, so 40 this so at the time you'd have been around 47 or so, 46, 47, you know, this mid 40s guy walks up there, old hardcore dude. I've seen this before, right? Now, rarely does it work for me because, you know, people like Terror, for example, they kill, right? Like they get up there and they're still rocking, uh, you know, watching Bedard with Bane or like any of those guys. Awesome, right? Um, But other times, you know, I've been around a lot of people and it's just kind of like, okay, like it's less that I feel motivated and more that I feel like gracious that this person's there, right? Like I love that you're still in this. It's more of that kind of a feeling. And so you get up there and I'm not one to be like overly judgmental, but for some reason I was just like, okay, what's this guy got? And dude, you (laughs) sold it, man. Seriously. And, and I, I, I don't know. I just really appreciated. I feel like someone has to kind of have the stones to get up there and like do that. You know what I mean? To to go to a hardcore show or like a metal show and just talk and keep everyone's attention. And that's Uh, something interesting because I was in the back of the room and I ended up in the front of the room. Right. Um, And, you know, playing shows so often, like, sometimes you just want to sit. It's not that you don't want to support people. I'm there for every band, right? But it's like, sometimes you just want to sit at the merch booth and just, like, chill out for a minute. And it was one of those nights, you know what I mean? But then I end up up front. uh, So, uh, you know, like, then after that, learning that you were, like, keynote speaker at uh, various, like, whether it be conferences or uh, different events and doing all your spoken word, that is definitely... Uh, somewhere we have to go. But back to my question: Where did you grow up, and how? Like, how did you get to trial? How did you get into hardcore?
1: Yeah. So I <clears throat> I grew up in a town called Woodbury, Connecticut, a small, uh, ancient town as as U.S. standards go. And there was a, a couple of people into hardcore in my town, into punk rock at the time. And I didn't know much about it at all, really. I was just hanging out with the wrong kids, (laughs) I guess, (laughs) and, you know, got intrigued by it. But one of the kids who got me into it originally was this kid, Chris, who lived up the street from me, and he started coming over to my house with these cassette tapes that he had recorded from the radio at the time of punk rock bands that he heard from radio stations that he was picking up somehow from, from other parts of the state and from New York City he comes over to my house with, with hip hop and hardcore on these cassettes and I'm listening to it and I found the hip hop stuff, interesting, cool, important, relevant, fascinating. But it was, it was close to what I was hearing in other aspects of my life, like on the radio say, Sure. but the punk, the punk rock was like, what the hell is happening? I mean, I was a metal kid growing up. Hair metal was my thing. And, and, uh, Dokken and Motley Crue and Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot, these bands, uh, Rat, um. So when I heard hardcore for the first time, I thought, what is this that takes that intensity as I saw it in hair metal and then adds swearing and messages like what's going on here? It's so raw. So I was I was hooked by it and I was very fortunate to grow up near the Anthrax, the sort of iconic uh, hardcore club on the East Coast. And while I didn't have the courage to go into New York and go to CBGB's because I didn't a, know what was really happening there, and 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 B, I wouldn't have known where to go, what to do if I did. Um, the anthrax was totally accessible, so my friends and I went all the time, and we started going early on, and then just kept going, and I got a chance to see a lot of you know bands that now are considered iconic, but at the time. We're just bands. I didn't think anything of it. I mean, we would get these flyers from the Anthrax and think, what are you doing Friday night? Oh, cool. There's a bad a band called Bad Brains playing. Let's go see that. And we yeah. had no idea. We'd walk into these shows and be like, okay, cool. Thank you, Agnostic Front Band, for playing. That was fun. And we'd go eat at Dunkin' Donuts and drive home. But we did that <laughs> all the time. Yeah. So you know that's that's what got me into hardcore and then I moved out to Seattle um to go to college to study acting and once I got out here I was really expecting to see a scene as vibrant and thriving as Connecticut as Connecticut had and it was actually quite small I remember my first show here was uh, January of 1991 was undertow with poison idea and I remember going up to the members of undertow after cuz they opened the show and I remember sitting and saying to John Pettibone, who I met five seconds before, wow, how, how big is the straight edge scene here? And he and his friends started laughing, and they were like, we're it. And he, they <laughs> met, like, the, the band plus their three friends was it. So what's happened in the Northwest has been quite remarkable over the last few decades.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When did you, when did you learn about straight edge then? And when did that come into your life? Because you just said once you, by the time you moved to Seattle, it seems like you were already there. So how did that get there?
1: Well, in the late 80s, there was, you know, it's so funny to talk about the 80s. It seems like, you know, Neolithic times, like we were writing (laughs) in form and carving into tablets for our show flyers, right? Uh, Stone tablet with show announcement here. Um, In the 80s, in the late 80s, 1987, 88 in particular, there was this incredible infusion of or rise of straight edge on the East Coast. And it seemed that Every week, there was new bands coming out, and my friends and I, who at the time were drinking as much as we possibly could and doing all the drugs we could find and afford, um, were like, "What is this straight edge thing? This is stupid." I mean, I, I you know, I, for me, it started with punk rock more than anything else. So I saw all these cookie cutter straight edge kids in their camo shorts and their, you know, similar dancing styles, and I just thought this is just so dumb and conformist and ridiculous. And then I was like, wait a minute, they've got a cool message behind this and they might be conformist and all have these bleach blonde haircuts and look the same, but there's something here. And then I got hooked by the music and then I realized how unhappy I was with myself for uh, the times that I was drinking and then I heard um, Uniform Choices song, No Thanks. And I remember exactly where I was when I was listening. I was driving in my car. I could literally bring you to the street in Woodbury, Connecticut, where I was driving. <laughs> and I heard the lyrics If drinking's what it takes to be accepted, I'd rather stay aware and be rejected. And I thought, wow, I can still be a punk rocker and embrace this straight edge concept, or at least the not drinking concept. And I quit drinking. And I mean, that was September 30th, 1988, which is a lifetime, literally a lifetime ago. And then uh, started, you know, referring to myself as straight edge years later. But um, but still from that starting point was was hooked. I mean, there's you know, there's something to be said for that. I hate to say it this way conformity in that we are we are pack animals we're meaning hungry creatures we draw our identity from one another so when we're around like-minded individuals there's a not to get you know overtly psychological but there's a psychological strengthening which comes from that it's a self-esteem building identity enhancing activity so it makes sense why we hang out with hardcore people or people who are into movies or people who are into you know the same music there's something to be said about it, so I just I latched onto it and started going to shows and, you know, even more often and uh, really connecting with the idea that we collectively were doing this straight edge and or drug free thing at the time, and uh, it was very life enhancing for me. I just never never went back.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you use the word conformity loosely. I know you were hesitant, um, but something I was talking to I believe uh, Ricardo and Dan from Holding These Moments or maybe the Bane guys, maybe both. I don't remember. Um, but there's something about being in like a family. Like, because the hardcore scene and like the sects of the scene that you hang around, like your group maybe in that scene. So maybe in yours, it was the straight edge kids. Even though there is a larger hardcore scene, you were in like that straight edge community. Um, it becomes like a family. And, and often it's, it's a lot more difficult, or at least in my experience, it was more difficult to relate to my real family. And it was a lot easier for me to relate to, like, my hardcore family, right? Because my family, they were like baby boomers, and I'm like, technically I'm a millennial, but my point is, like... I'm, like, a way, in a way different place, okay? And my dad's yeah. just, like, you know, again, dad's listening to this. I love you. You're the best. But, like, you know, my dad was kind of, a like, stop crying and do hard work. <laughs> you know, like, when I was growing up, you know, he's the coolest now. I can't stress that enough. But, like, uh, it was just a lot different then. You know what I mean? So whenever you get into hardcore and stuff, it's – from the outside, it may look like, oh, you're just, you're just trying to be a goth kid. Or you're just trying to be an emo kid or a hardcore kid or whatever – but when you're in it, though, it's true, man. Like it's it's yeah. a real thing.
1: Yeah, it's and 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 like a family, it's uh, it's dysfunctional and anxiety producing, and it's exactly like a family. But it's also, like I was mentioning earlier, it's truly, genuinely, life and identity enhancing. You know, we draw power from many different sources in our lives, and one of them is the people around us. And that's a huge one. It's 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 by way of those around us that we can reflect what we're putting out into the world and from those reactions, strengthen and enhance the the attributes of ourselves that we're, we're, we're being. I don't know even know how else to describe it. We come into being through our relationship with other people. So when we're at a hardcore show and we're connecting with people and talking, there's just this self-identity that, that gets built amidst that. And I don't mean that that's a fiction. I mean that it's quite real. I mean, you know, people do this in all walks of life. And in fact, I can tell you a quick story that that proves that in a way. Not proves it, but that demonstrates it in a way. Mm-hmm. I dated for many years uh, a woman named Cynthia, who I'm still very good friends with. And Cynthia's favorite band was Fish, the grateful dead thing. You know the, <laughs> <laughs> PH. You know. Yeah, P-H. Fish <laughs> and PH. So when we started dating we both thought that the other was completely out of their minds. Uh, one of our first dates, she came to see Trial, hate breed, and Today's the Day at at at, at a show, and afterwards wow. she's just like, "I'm not sure this is going to work," you know? Like yeah. she's like, "What is happening?" But so we kind of goof on each other all the time. But there was one day I was telling her, I was like, "You don't you don't seem to understand. Anywhere I go in the world, I can find or meet hardcore kids who are like minded." You know, at least loosely like minded, even if we disagree on politics or our approach, we're going to find I'm going to find community anywhere I go in the world, even if I don't know anyone in the city, just based on the fact that we have this music as a background. And I'm going to find a place to sleep and I'll be able to share a meal with somebody and we're going to be able to connect over music and over this lifestyle. And she looked at me. She's like, yeah, we, we've got that, too. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. You, you like fish. They're a grateful dead band. What I'm talking about is hardcore. <laughs> Anywhere <laughs> I can go in the world, I've got this community. And I went on to describe it. There's these shows with this passion, and everyone comes together, and it's like, you know, these nights that are just magic. And she's like, yeah, I, yeah, we've got we've got that too. Okay. I realized that she was absolutely right. And I remember when she and I went to see fish together, I think the one and only time was in Salt Lake City, Utah. We flew down there for this tremendous fish show that turned out to be brilliant and incredible. Um, I realized she was right that the self esteem enhancing, identity building, personality developing aspects of, of community are everywhere, regardless of its fish. Or the metal scene, or the goth scene, or the hip-hop scene, or the hardcore scene. But what we've got is special in its own right for us, because it's the one that we chose. We could have chosen a- a- any one of them, but we chose hardcore. And and it's 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 important to have a community of some kind. I don't think that human beings get to live in a vacuum. So when we come together and we're moshing or stage diving or singing along or sitting in the back at the merch table or watching the guy do spoken word on stage. This is, this is important psychological stuff, not to mention it's oftentimes fun and interesting and politically challenging. So it's, it's good all around.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's also partly like that connection, you know, anytime you get a connection with somebody or a group of people, you know, have you ever had a friend, Greg, where, uh, they have a certain saying that they say and over time being around them long enough, you start to like integrate <laughs> that saying into your vocabulary because you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I have that um, a lot. Uh, I'm trying to remember now the word cause now it's uh, it's so I'm so used to it, but my buddy Thrasher, he's going to text me and say shout out. But anyways, um, my buddy Thrasher uh, says uh, good shout which is like a, a, a British term. And I find myself sometimes stopping myself from saying it because it's like natural to like, I just want to say, Oh, good shout dude. You know, but it like, I don't know. It's like a strange thing. So any, my point is whenever you, when you get a connection with somebody or a group of people or, or you find that connection um, that those people are, are inherently influential on how you perceive that shared experience or, life or or whatever the situation or connection uh, entails. So like, um, if anybody listening to this is a good friend of mine, they've heard me go on this rant, but there's something that I learned studying communications where you look at beliefs, attitudes, and values, and that shapes how we think, feel, and behave. Right. So, uh, you know, if, uh, you grew up in a, in a kind of blue collar Southern, uh, household in a, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, Southern Baptist church, Um, and I don't know, um, uh, I don't know. The point is, like, you, you have these, like, uh, demographic details, right, that, that fill in, and then someone may be from, you know, Seattle, you know, mid-40s, blah, 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 like, all of these things listens to hardcore, you guys may not connect as well on the surface, you know, you might be able to find room to connect. Um, but because of the upbringing that you each had, you started in Connecticut, went to uh, Seattle, you know, I've been in Indiana my whole life, pretty much with the exception of maybe a year of my life. Um, you know, we're going to have different experiences that we may be able to find, uh, connections in, but our beliefs, attitudes, and values, which shape how we think, feel and behave are going to influence how we perceive all things. So for example... Your, your beliefs, attitudes, and values may have been shaped by hardcore, right? You might have seen Undertow or, or whoever, and these things were really connecting with you, right? And then, uh, you know, this young lady that you're seeing is into fish, right? Now, that is not a shared experience for you, right? Your beliefs, attitudes, and values about certain things may have been shaped differently. But something I also find interesting is you did find a way to connect, right? You found the connection, um, and so, uh, I don't know. I, 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 love that. That was a complete tangent, but I, I really, no, 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 this is great. Yeah. I really love picking up on those things because, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know. It's just like a really impactful thing to me.
1: Well, if you remember, if I remember correctly and granted, there's been a ton of spoken shows, but if I'm remembering the, the Indiana show correctly, that night I told the story of my parents meeting on stage. And if I'm remembering correctly. I'd never told that story at a hardcore show on stage. It's one that I tell when I do like more commercial speaking engagements, but I'd never told that story on stage at a hardcore show ever. I took the risk that night to try to tell it because I thought this is a way to connect with the audience, meaning everybody has or had parents who at some point met. So if I tell the story, this is a connective tool because I didn't really know many people in the audience that night. And I remember telling the story, and having it go over pretty well, if I'm remembering the, the, the right night. And I think that uh, I think that that's um, what do I want to say? That 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 that's a way to connect, in the way that you're describing, right? I think it's really um, an important thing to do when one is on stage or when one is in person is is to connect on some level. Like for example, like you and I, the audio listeners don't know this, are looking at each other right now uh, via Skype. It helps to have that connection. And when you talk about that Cynthia and I many years ago found a way to connect across musical differences. You know, when we went to this Fish show in Salt Lake City, Fish was famous every Halloween for doing a full cover Concert. They would do an album front to back. And I tried to get her tickets for, I think it was Reno, Nevada, or Las Vegas, and it sold out on that particular night that year. So I was like, oh well, we'll go to the next night in Salt Lake as a backup plan. Fish comes out on stage that night in Salt Lake, and they tell this anecdote from the stage, like about this, you know, this these people who tried to go to the the show, because they knew that a lot of people in the audience couldn't get tickets the night before. And they said, you know, so these people, hypothetically, came the next night instead. And the whole crowd is cheering because, like, half of the people probably wanted to be there the night before. And, and Fish, who had evidently played the Velvet Underground record the night before, I think, said to the audience, and these people who showed up at this backup show got to hear this album instead. And they played Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, from front to back Holy as a cover shit, record. Yeah. Okay, I'm standing there in the audience, and now it's Cynthia who wasn't as familiar with Dark Side of the Moon, and me who's like Pink Floyd fanatic. I'm just like, what is happening? I'm a Fish fan. I love this <laughs> band so much. <laughs> and we lost our minds. We lost our minds. And like, I had like at the time, I was doing the like tons. Of, this is going. I, we're going off into the deep end of. We're excited. Do it. Okay. I was, um, you know, I, I made my living for years as a juggler and performer. And at the time I was doing tons of fairs and festivals as a, as a stage performer. So in my pocket at the fish show, I reached into my pocket and in this pair of pants, I realized I had these long balloons, like the time, the type you twist into animals. <laughs> yeah. So I start pulling out these balloons and I'm blowing them up and like shooting them out into the audience, these long, thin balloons, like not just one, not just five, but like 70, 80 of them. I just had <laughs> this this pack of balloons in my pocket and they start making their way onto the stage. Somewhere there's a video of this Salt Lake show with the members of Fish picking up or kicking around these balloons on stage that, that Cynthia and I are blowing up and sending into the audience. I mean, talk about... Connection between me and Cynthia, and there's balloons flying around, and people are appreciating that. There's just something about it, and that is the cousin to the sing-alongs, the stage dives, the 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 the, the band shirt, the colored vinyl, but more importantly, just the sense that we're involved in something collectively. All of that is all connected, totally life-enhancing, and uh, and yeah, that's uh The fish story, as it were. I have (laughs) something super
0: exciting. I'm excited to ask you about juggling, but we're gonna get there in a second because I have to bring this up. (laughs) You brought up t-shirts and as a collective or like as a connection, right? And I was talking, I think, I think to Andy Williams from Every Time I Die was on here a few episodes back, and Um, uh, he's a professional wrestler now for All Elite Wrestling, and I'm a big wrestling fan, so we were like geeking out about that, you know. And he was talking about, you know. You know, if somebody's wearing a Metallica shirt or the Misfits shirt or Led Zeppelin, it doesn't mean you will automatically connect with them, right? Mm-hmm. But Because it's so pop culture. It's so big now that so sure. many people from different walks of life could be wearing that thing. Or maybe it's just a fashion thing. It just depends. Or maybe they're super into it. But then if you get somebody wearing like, I don't know, uh, like a, 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 a Zayo shirt... Or like, uh, you know, or like um, a strong arm shirt or, you uh-huh. know what I mean? Or, or like yes. uh, uh, Shia Lude, you have a pretty fucking good chance of being friends with this person because you know what you're in for. If they're wearing yeah. that shirt, if they're wearing a trial shirt, yes, like I, I'm probably going to be able to talk to this person to some extent. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so that's no joke. Like t- <laughs> T-shirts are definitely a part of that conversation. That was a big thing for me going to shows even is like you find your pack by, you know, the shirts that they were wearing for me, you know. Uh, if somebody's wearing, you know, uh, I grew up in the church, so I, you know, I... Uh, the This is why
1: you, you named Zeo and Strongarm first. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, th- that was my <laughs> upbringing, because that's why yeah. I didn't know trial until way later, or uh, hate breed even. I, I knew who they were, but I didn't listen to them until I was like 25 or something, right. you know, yeah. um, because the first what, 20 years of my life, it was like, one, it was hardcore or metal or nothing, scream or nothing, right, and so I didn't even do hair metal bands, I went from listening to my mom's CDs of like Whitney Houston to like, you know, Unashamed, you know what I mean, like that was my jump, mortification, so I started with like Christian Hardcore in the youth group, there were people listening to like Unashamed, old Zayo stuff, um, all of that, and uh, I got hooked, man. That was like, but it was that connection. It was that family. These are the cool kids. These are the kids I want to be like, right? You mentioned like being with the wrong crowd. They were probably the wrong crowd of this youth group, you know? Of but they were the people that I found cool and I connected with. And I thought it was like really interesting. But when we would go to shows and we would go to these like, uh, say, say, I remember um, one time I saw uh, Stretch Armstrong with, I forget who it was. It was like, bleeding through or something like it was some, it was like a quote unquote Christian band, which whatever. And then like a quote unquote secular band. Right. I was going to say a mixed bill. Yeah. 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 So like, you know, um, I remember going there and you could just see on the shirts, you know, if someone's wearing like that Zayo shirt or they're wearing that, you know, uh, Norma Jean shirt or they're wearing you know, whatever the thing is, um, these are my people. And then you go talk to them and I'm still friends with people. I randomly talk to at shows because of t shirts they're wearing. So it is a connective tool. Um, and uh, I love that you brought that up. Now, I got to go, I got to run a juggling real quick, okay? <laughs> Imagine my excitement when I look at your IMDb page, okay? And I see the title The Beast Within, a Gabriel Knight mystery. <laughs> and being a huge point and click adventure fan, um, having only played the first Gabriel Knight, not the full motion animation. Uh, the full motion video uh, version. So I look on YouTube today and God damn it, Greg, I find you juggling.
1: <laughs> I've never seen, I've never seen the footage. You'll have to send me the link. dude. I so, will.
0: It's the opera scene from that. And, and yes. you can watch the whole thing, but will you please, cause I want to talk about your acting. Cause you mentioned going to school for acting, but we have to jump to this now. Cause you brought up juggling. I'm a huge game guy, and I grew up playing point and clicks, right? And it was mostly like, I don't know, did you ever grow up playing those, or is this a complete fluke that you were involved in one?
1: Um, I got hired for the gig. At the time, I think I played a couple. I couldn't even remember titles, but I remember playing a couple just to understand what was going on. But uh, yeah, it wasn't a huge part of my life. My thing was more like console games and and whatnot, but anyway.
0: Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I grew up, my uncle always had these types of games around. Um, Usually the comedy games like uh, titles you may have heard of like Monkey Island or Space Quest or like these, you know, he'd have King's Quest and these like classics. Right. Um, But uh, yeah, I never knew Gabriel Knight until years later. And I see this on your IMDb. How did this come to be this? You're completely just entertaining me now. I don't really care if listeners even know what this is. How did you get involved in this? Because
1: this is amazing. Okay. You're the first person I think to ever ask me about this. <laughs> I'm so happy that you have. <laughs> I mean, I'm not game, surprised at all. <laughs> this game has been out for 20, 20 years. It was game of the year that year. And uh, as far as I understand, it won tons of awards. Okay. So context for the listeners. Gabriel – Gabriel um Knight. Gabriel Knight the beast yeah Gabriel Knight was a series of games the beast within was one of those games if i remember the correctly
0: one, yeah
1: yeah the second one and i was i got a call from an agent saying that they were filming in seattle for one of the cut scenes at the end of the game and they needed a juggler for this scene they needed a couple, actually, as I remember correctly. And I remember they they hired, I think they hired a guy named Bob Bailey, and they hired me. And we were told to meet at this theater, and we come down to the theater, and we're told that it's an opera scene, and it's going to be at the end of the game. And essentially, spoiler alert for a 20-year-old game, if you play the game all the way through to the end and chase this werewolf all the way through the game, you end up in this opera where there's this dramatic confrontation, and... I'm on stage. I missed this opera scene and I'm juggling on stage. Okay. So I went down, and for me, it was just a gig. Like it was a few hundred bucks. And I went down and I did this gig and I juggled for, you know, the, the day. And they shot it from a bunch of different angles. And then I forgot about it.
0: <laughs> I juggled okay. for the day. <laughs>
1: And I love funny, that phrasing. Go I love I love the fact that for me, that's the least curious of the things I just said. Right? For me, that I got hired for a werewolf scene is weird. Yeah. The juggling for the day—that's like that's just another day at work, right? Yeah. Okay. So check it out. So so I forgot about it for about a year or so, and one night at about eleven o'clock, I get a phone call from my friend Mike in Connecticut. And Mike can't even speak, okay? He is like, uh, d- dude, oh, what the hell? You're in my video game. What the hell is going on? He had been sitting up. He bought Gabriel, Gabriel Knight Beast Within, played the game all the way through to the end, is probably sitting there stoned out of his mind, and at 2 in the morning Connecticut time, <laughs> I'm on his screen. He's like, what's happening? You're <laughs> in my video game? <laughs> and I'm like... Hey dude, yeah, I am in your video game. Um, it was pretty wild, so <laughs> I haven't been asked about that in forever. But,
0: dude, I, I, love, I, uh, I, I, love, I mean, it. I had no idea this was a thing. I just looked at your IMDb because I know you'd produced and written some movies. Um, and I know that you had acted in Seven Splinters in Time. Um, but then I see because I was looking for because I couldn't remember Seven Splinters in Time the name, and I was going to look it up. And then I look at your acting credits right below it. It says The Beast Within a Gabriel Knight Mystery, and below that it says The Last Supper, which I have no idea what that is. But Well, we might have to talk about that in a moment. Um, sure. But the Gabriel Knight thing, just also for context, uh, Gabriel Knight was one of the biggest series that I believe it was Sierra Online had. And uh, there's a great podcast, by the way, if anybody wants to listen to it. This is a random, no one paid me to say it. It's called Point and Click, an adventure game podcast. This dude does an awesome in-depth look at these games and he did the first Gabriel Knight so if you want to learn about where that came from and kind of a historical thing go check that out I love that I should just have him on sometime even though this is a movie thing we got to talk point and click adventures but anyways so uh what's awesome is right around this time which this came out in 96 so it's like 24 almost 25 years old um uh full motion video was really popular so even though now it looks way more aged than like any of the games before it, you know, at the time that was cutting edge, dude. So you were a part of something that was actually important because the Gabriel Knight series, is a lot, uh, uh, along with a lot of other full motion video games, uh, were like That's big so deals. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I almost like fell on the ground whenever I read that. I just because <laughs> I just recently played the first game. Oh, actually, it was during this pandemic, because once the shutdown hit on um, Steam or uh, good old games, GOG, uh, you can buy point and click adventure games for like 69 cents to like $5. Like they're so cheap. So I bought like 25 of them for less than 20 bucks, dude, like so many games. And one of them was the first Gabriel Knight game. I don't know why I'm telling you this now, but I'm just like so hyped. I'm sure you can see it, but <laughs> I love it. Um, I'm so, so excited about this. Yeah. So tell me this, though. So you you do this gig, but what got you to go out to Seattle for acting? Like, how did acting come out of it? And then were you are? This is like a two parter, I guess. Were you already in trial at that point? Or like, where did that come yeah. in? Like, what's the split? What's the timeline between acting and hardcore?
1: Yeah, I'm realizing everything we've talked about for the last half hour is a diversion from that, which was your first question, which is great. I love when interviews <laughs> no, go. No, we're that there.
0: Way. We got there, yeah.
1: Okay. Cool. Um, and I need to I need to buy and play Gabriel Knight, the Beast Within, so I can get to the opera scene and play myself, as it were. Uh, see myself <laughs> on screen. Are right, you gonna know, send me the YouTube I'm video? I'm gonna send
0: you the YouTube video.
1: I love it. Okay, so um, I was uh, out of out of high school. I went to Syracuse University for a year and dropped out after a year. Uh, I had seen a performer named Larry Hunt, who is now unfortunately deceased, but he was incredibly talented, and he worked with masks as a metaphor uh, and masks as as demonstration of different aspects of our lives. He was just a theatrical stage performer. And I saw him do a gig in upstate New York when I was at Syracuse. And I made mention to him that I wasn't happy with the school. I loved the people that I was meeting, but I wasn't happy with the school. And he said, you know, if you were back in Connecticut, because that's where he was from, we could maybe do, um, you know, a situation where I teach you about masks. I was like, cool, dropped out of school, spent the next year studying masks with him, mask making, how to perform with them, what they signify. And then at the end of the year, he was like, what are you going to do next year? I said, I have no idea. He said that he had uh, friends who taught at a school called Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle. He's like, why don't you look it up and see what you think? So I looked it up and applied and ended up getting in uh, for acting and moved across the country uh, to study acting at Cornish. And that was four years before trial formed, I think. Trial formed right after I graduated. So that was pre-trial, but that's how I made it out to Seattle, and that's where trial ultimately came from.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and so so – you go to school you do the acting thing you do this really badass game and then, and then um, while you're acting you get what is this last supper thing tell me it's a, it's a short okay. you play the person that that's okay. your that's your name <laughs> on
1: there so um, while in school i was juggling to make part of my living and i met a local juggler named gabriel jude weinshell <laughs> and gabriel at the time was maybe 17 years old and he was a juggler and, and had a, a show and we used to perform together at street fairs as street performers. And, uh, Gabriel was making his first film or maybe his second little film. And I say little only because they were short films at the time, but this one was going to be more ambitious than the rest. And I should say that Gabriel was this genius of a kid. He was well beyond his years in terms of what this film was about. Um, and he told me, I'm making a movie about a man who learns that he's living his last day and he has to reconcile that fact before he dies. I'm like, dude, you're 17. Like, what are you talking about? That's what your film is about. But cool. Okay. So he hired myself and, uh, and, and a local actress who I think, I think we were dating at the time uh, named Gabrielle Sarand and uh, uh, to be in his film. And it's a 25-minute short film about a man who indeed is living his last day and reconciles this fact before he dies. And I'd have to ask Gabriel to see where it's available. I can I can send him a message and see. There might be a version of it somewhere on his website and whatnot. Um, Gabriel has gone on to make films, including Seven Splinters in Time, as well oh. as direct as well as direct videos, you know, for all sorts of different musicians. He just worked with Ben Harper. He's done a ton of stuff. But Gabriel's the one who 20-plus years later called me and said, hey, after making these short, quirky films, I'm directing my first feature. He had told me in 1993, someday when I do my first feature, I'm going to cast you as as one of the stars. I was like, cool. And kind of like the Gabriel Night Within thing, when it was done, I was like, okay, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Gabriel Jude Weinshell called me a, a few years ago. He said, hey, I'm in New York City. I'm casting my first feature and I want you to star in this film. And that became Seven Splinters in Time, this extremely abstract, incredibly interesting, quirky, weird film. Uh, that that just got released a couple years ago. So that's that's how that came, <laughs> that came together.
0: Yeah, um, I, mean, I watched yeah. the trailer to it because I haven't seen it. Uh, I had never heard of it either um, until I was looking you up after my holding these moments, uh, like, conversations, and I was looking up different people involved. Of course, you were, and uh, I saw that, and I was like, oh, my God, I have to, like, educate myself. I hate not knowing movies, right? Like, that bothers me because I spent so many years studying and studying and studying and learning all these things. Um, but watching it, it, the quirkiness definitely comes out, and uh, I, I, I I need to see the whole feature. Um, but The Last Supper, I tried to find it on YouTube while we were just talking just now, and I'd, I'd have to dig pretty deep. I doubt it is. If you find out where it is, though, I want to see this thing. Um, I'll get it for
1: you. I'll, I talk to Gabriel pretty often, so I'll, uh, I'll, fo- I'll follow up and get it to you.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, uh, again, can't stress enough. I'm so excited that you were in The Beast Within. I'm going to send you that YouTube. So you're doing all of this, and then uh, when did trial form? What year, around what year was that? Was that 97?
1: No, uh, we formed in 1994, and we used the name headline in 1994 for a a, a a minute, like literally like a month or so, and then we recorded a demo, maybe it was a couple months we were headlined, and then we recorded a demo spring, winter, spring, 1995. And that's when we changed the name to trial. So it was uh, spring of, of, 1995. I can't get over the beast within Gabriel night two, that we talked about this, <laughs> this opera scene. I'm <laughs> going to be like laughing about this all day. It's amazing. It's... And that you're excited about it. It's not just that you read the credit <laughs> and you're like, Oh, what is this? And I told you, and you're like, cool, bro. Who cares? The fact that that's like the operative moment for you has made my day. <laughs>
0: I mean, it's made mine just finding it like, and then watching the scene on YouTube and then just like so intensely looking for you because I'm like, where could he be? And then you just there's a there's a main guy in your, you know, uh, drove of gypsies that you're with. And then you just walk in front of him and immediately start juggling his pins or whatever. And I'm like, yes, holy shit. That's him. <laughs> like I almost didn't recognize <laughs> think- you because you have this big jester hat on. And, um, See, I, don't and know. I was going to ask,
1: I was going to ask if I had a jester hat or am I wearing like a white puffy shirt of some
0: kind? I only remember red tights, but okay. maybe you were, I-, I can't remember.
1: No, no. And honestly, I, I, the reason I'm asking is because I might've had a, 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 a jester costume. We shot a bunch of different versions. Now that I'm remember, I haven't thought about this in years. I had this white jester outfit that someone had made for me for one specific gig, right? I never wore it. But we got hired, uh, like a friend of mine who was a mime and myself. (laughs) (laughs) We're going deep now.
0: (laughs) I just want to clarify real quick that you've been involved in video games. Uh, You were, your mom was a communicator. Uh, You're a hardcore singer in a popular hardcore band. You're also a juggler. You're friends with mimes. I mean, this is getting really awesome and very interesting already. Okay. So, so
1: my friend who was a mime called me and was like, listen, I have a gig for us, but we have to be dressed as like jesters. And I'm like, I'd rather die, but sure, I'll do it for the money. So she came up with these outfits. And I remember having this white puffy shirt thing. And I brought it to the Gabriel Knight Beast Within shooting, filming, and I remember wearing it for some of the scenes, but then they had an outfit or a costumer on hand and they changed costumes. I don't even know what I look like in this thing, but I love the fact that the scene of me juggling is like front and center. Because I remember two things. I remember thinking, I wonder if I should j- jump in front of the camera so that like, I increase my chances of actually being in this game. And then I also remember thinking, nah, whatever. If I'm in it, I'm in it. Fine. But I think the director told me, cross in front of the camera at some point. So I'm I'm fascinated to see how this yeah, all turned gotta out. Yeah, I got to
0: show you because you even have a close-up on your face where you're like – it looks like you're trying to pull your hair out, but you have a jester hat on. Um, I mean, it's it's re- it's gold, dude. Uh, and I don't, I don't even really like full motion video, like video games from that time. But I have to like play this game. Um, I, I mean, you're really just through the pandemic. I got super deep into point and clicks again. So I mean, this is really uh, hitting a nail, so to speak. Oops. Um, so we're, I, I feel like we could sit and talk about this exact scene for like two hours, but, um, so <laughs> let me,
1: <laughs> I'm going to, I love the fact in one, in one interview thus far, I told the story of my mom crushing this audience of senior citizens <laughs> and about my friend, the mime and this, like this video game. It's like unbelievable.
0: This is what I'm here for, Greg. This, oh, this is I'm what so I glad. do, man. I'm so
1: glad you're here. <laughs>
0: Okay, hold on. So so Trial Forms in 94, um, what was the original name? Headline. So Headline, but only for a minute, and then your trial, you put out this demo. Now, at what point do you go from just being some local band from the Northwest to, uh, like, touring all the time? Um, like, when did you meet the guys in Bane, like Bedard? Um, I might be projecting, but it seemed like you knew Bedard, and you guys were friends how did how did here's you how get this, to there?
1: Yeah, here's how this happens. So, uh, trial things. When okay, now all this with a grain of salt because today, if your band takes off, you've got a hundred thousand followers and you're crushing it worldwide. Okay. Yeah. In 1995, things took off in air quotes relatively quickly. In that you know the first night we had our demo for sale, we expected to sell five copies, we we sold like seventy or eighty, and it's just something about again, it's just. What makes one band happen and another band not? It was the right band on the right night at the right moment at the right time. And this little buzz started. Well, I should specify that Trial was never the full-time touring machine that Bain was. You know, we'd go out a couple times a year for six or seven weeks or something, uh, whereas other bands go constantly. Yeah. But it was on one of the early tours. I think we toured the U.S. for the first time in 1996, if I remember correctly, in support of the Through the Darkest Days 7-inch that came out on Crimethink. And it was on that tour that we met Bain. And it might have been late 95 that we went out for the first time. But I remember we were playing in 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 Kingston or wilkes Pennsylvania. And I remember that we were playing with Bain and Aaron Bedard and I sat down and talked and I remember him saying that he hoped that Bane could go out and tour as much as trial did. And I was like, well, it's easy. You go out every you know, a couple times a year for six or seven weeks and you're done. Little did I know that Bane would go out for six or seven decades nonstop, you know, <laughs> but yeah. at the time, at the time, you know, what the amount of touring that we were doing seemed like, you know, enough. I mean, in retrospect, I wish we toured more almost, but, um. You know, my voice at the time simply couldn't handle it. It's it's very strange that my voice went out for years and years and years. And oddly, interestingly, in 2015, it locked in and has not given me problems since. It literally took 20 years of singing hardcore and constantly being frustrated and disappointed with my voice. And I remember being on stage in Russia with Trial. I think it was, 20, was it 2015 or 2013, that all of a sudden... Um, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I could do this all night. And since then, studio, live, whatever bands, back-to-back shows doesn't make a difference. Uh, my voice stays pretty intact for the most part. It's only gone out when I've like, like lost concentration and like blown it out, you know, like I did on- the bystander tour in Europe last summer. But even then, I can make it happen each night, which is very bizarre.
0: Yeah, it, it dude, something that most listeners will not even understand is the life of a hardcore vocalist. Okay, <laughs> That conditioning your voice is like conditioning any muscle. I remember I had been out of hardcore from 2008 until 2014, I think it was. Because I remember I started, it was a solo project, and then a few friends I'd played with back in 2008 were like, We'll play that music. And it was already planned. One of the guys is going to be moving. So it's like, we're going to play like two or three shows just to do it for fun. The first one we had was a festival that we knew the guy. And he's like, dude, you can play on. I'm like, fuck yeah, dude. Like, we'll play in front of a few hundred people for our first show. I don't care. And we'd all played music for years, right? So I had went through a divorce at that time. So I'm all kinds of emotional, right? And I'm all kinds of worked up. And I'm like a big mess. And I remember we... Like, played that first show, and my voice was gone for, like, two weeks, dude. Like, I well, blew right. it up. Yeah. And then, you know, we, we played our next show, like, two weeks later. I got through that one. It's blown up for, like, two weeks. And then we stopped playing. And then in 2016, I joined uh, Barricades, because they were another band called Inheritors. We changed the name and uh, started doing our own thing in 2016. And I joined because my best friend was in the band, um, and they needed a vocalist. So I jumped in. I hadn't done anything but two shows in like eight years, right, <clears throat> excuse me, and so uh, I, I try to go into the studio because I'm also at the time recording a solo record, like I wanted to do like a solo project, a hardcore project, and I go in, and it's the same studio I had mentioned to you before we started recording, I think, or at the beginning of this, whatever, and uh, I try to scream in the first note, there's no like girth to it, dude, there's no roar, it's a squeak, And uh, like the first push, I blew my voice out. And I went from that to being able to go three, four nights in a row, like with barricades. You know what I mean? Where we're like playing all these shows. And I just, it's so defeating though. Like whenever you can't do the thing, especially if you're so passionate about it, because I love playing music. And um, just a few days ago, actually, I was writing a song. Uh, and I was like, dude, I'm just gonna like throw random vocals over this just to see if I still got it. And the fact that anything solid came out made me so happy. Um, but like, I can't imagine playing in a band for what at that point was what almost two decades at that point or well, something.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was twenty years, and yeah. I can't remember what year that the the, um, the Russian show was. It was 2013 or 2015, whatever it was. It was almost twenty years or twenty years. And then one night it just clicked about where to position your breath and how to project and how to push and not push too hard.
0: And Pushing like I said, too hard, dude. That's, that yeah. was my thing.
1: Well, when Trial First was recording Through the Darkest Days in 96, we recorded with a recording engineer who was very part-time, didn't know what he was doing. And he advised me to push hard and, and you know, push really hard and make my voice bleed, he said. And that set me on a, on a tangent that almost cost me my voice, meaning I was told before we recorded our album to stop singing. And the only reason we recorded with me is because I refused literally a doctor's orders. I spent Uh, nine months, I think it was not speaking above this volume about, about this loud first nine months. I protected my voice for nine months and yeah. So I like, even if like I was hurt or something, I'd be like, Oh, I would never (laughs) scream, you know? Um, it was intense. And I, I, I studied breathing with an opera coach, ironically, because I don't know if you know, but I was in Gabriel Knight, Abused <laughs> Within 2, in the opera scene. But I studied with an opera coach um, for, for those nine months, and it was really helpful to learn breathing technique. And like I said, since then, the only times that I've blown my voice out are when I'm not concentrating, which is true of anything, meaning you could be the greatest runner in the world or a good whatever athlete. And if you just, you don't warm up, you just start sprinting into traffic. It's not going to go well for you. And on the bystander tour in Europe last year, after a show or so, you know, I just wasn't concentrating. I just took it for granted, right. And blew my voice out a bit, but it's nothing like it was back in the day when I had that squeak and that squeak is, is, you know, we can get super technical about vocal cords and what happens to vocal cords when that squeak is happening, but that's just not a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, But since then, like for example, when we recorded the second Bystander record, which is my new band, um, one of them, I'm in a band called Between Earth and Sky, and we haven't recorded in quite some time, but um, the second Bystander record last year, we did that record over the course of a couple of days. I could never, ever, ever do such a thing in the studio as record vocals for five or six hours. That would, that's unheard of. I would do five or six minutes and be, and be done. But uh, to be able to go five or six hours or longer in the studio is just a testament to whatever magic happened in, in Russia that, <laughs> that night, where I finally yeah. was like, oh, I get it. You
0: know? Yeah, dude, uh, You know, I, I remember, <clears throat> funny enough that I mentioned Zayo, we played with Zayo twice uh, whenever they started playing again pretty hard. And uh, I remember it was the, I think the first time we played with Zayo or something, Um, before then, you know, you have the adrenaline with the crowd and everything, and that makes it a lot easier. Even if you're pushing really hard, it feels good while you're playing, and then you're just shot afterwards. Being in the studio is a whole different jam, because that's really where it's like, do you have any talent? Because here's your shot. (laughs) You know, like, there's no adrenaline. You have to make it yourself. I'm, like, running in a vocal booth, like, you know, trying to hype myself up, trying to get it out. But then, like, I learned during the Zayo show... (coughs) That I was like hitting these solid notes, best I'd ever sounded, right? And I wasn't pushing that hard. I was flexing my diagram a certain way. I know how to sing. I took vocal lessons in school back in like 2004. My mom was an incredible vocalist. Uh, When she was alive, she was incredible. I mean, like professional. Your mom is to communication, as my mom was to singing. Now, she usually just sang like worship music, she was like the worship leader. Sure. Uh, at my grandpa's church, but people that would come from all over the world that would see her because they would go to my grandpa's churches, like whether they're evangelists or whatever, they would see her and they'd ask her to come to their church. Like she could have easily toured these churches. Like she was so so talented. So like watching her, hearing her, her telling me things she did. Um, I play this Zayo show and I'm just not pushing hard and I'm being very like you said. I'm focused and I'm thinking once I once it clicked. And I was like, oh, shit, like, if I do this, this sounds better. It's amazing because you'd think you have to push harder. Pushing harder makes it sound worse. <laughs> Way worse. Yeah, so it's like, you know, now I, it was after that Zeo show, though, where I could start kind of playing these shows back to back because I wasn't blowing my voice out. I mean, that's, that's a big deal, uh, finding that thing. Um, so real quick, so, so you meet uh, Bane in Trial. Um, trial goes on. When was the last show for Trial.
1: Well I mean we we played uh, you know last shows in in the uh in as I remember the late 90s but then we played additional shows you know, which at first were reunion shows in 2005, and then we were liking playing shows and we played more shows. The last show that we played was New Age Records' uh, 30th anniversary, which was in Los Angeles about a year, I guess a year and a half ago, was that? Or two years ago uh, at this point? Um, so that was the last time we played, was in in Los Angeles for that. And we've known Mike since he put out our second record, the Foundation record, and we love him and the label. So when we were asked to play, we were honored to participate. So it was really fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so you guys, uh, so you guys play that. When does your kind of, um, I don't know how to say this word, like kind of professional speaking? I'm not talking about spoken word, but like yeah. you know, speaking. How did that even come to be though? And when did that start? Because that was kind of, I think, the next big step. Like you were still playing music, of course, through that, but th- when did that start? In like the mid 2000s or something? When you started speaking? More? Yeah,
1: yeah, it definitely did right around then. What had happened was, you know, I was making my living doing the juggling. Thing. And I realized that it was, it was, you know, juggling was most interesting for me when I was dressed as a jester in opera scenes. No, <laughs> juggling was, was most interesting for me when there was ideas attached to it. Like not when I was just like doing tricks, like tricks is like, who cares? I mean, well, no, it's not who cares. It's interesting. Juggling as metaphor, juggling is visually fascinating. All of that I could talk about all day long, but the, but the idea of doing like cheesy tricks, for money. It's like, whatever. Um, what was interesting was when I would do a trick and connect it to an idea or when I was speaking in between the tricks or having it be funny, but also be idea driven. That was most interesting to me. So then I started thinking, I wonder if I could just be kind of speaking as the driving force for this. And rather than be hired as the juggler guy, be hired as the speaker guy. I mean, that was more interesting to me. So That's what I started doing around, yeah, you know, mid two thousands ish or so. I kind of transitioned to that quite a bit, and uh, then spoken word came, uh, came, came after that. Came in the early two thousand teens, as it were. Yeah, Uh, you know, I started, you know, going out and touring, doing that.
0: Yeah, I want to go back real quick and just say, I don't mean to laugh every time you bring juggling up. I think this is really fascinating, but no. And you're about to say, like, no, I get it. No, seriously. It's really fascinating to me. I just keep forgetting. And then you bring it up and I'm like, holy shit, this dude is a juggler. Like, I can't believe how much of this consumed your life. Like, I didn't realize this was like your jam, dude. So
1: to the point where my nickname was the juggler in Seattle. There are people in Seattle who don't refer to me when they see me as Greg. Like, even Derek Harn from HIMSA only calls me juggler. Like there are tons of people who only call me jugglers. And that's that's from the 90s. That was my entire existence. So when you laugh, I love it because it shows me how successful it was that I, rather than just stay the juggler, changed and transformed a bit along the way. But I have to tell you, I mean, the juggling thing is like immensely important and I I love it and I always, I always will in a certain regard. Uh, I should send you. the the photo from my high school yearbook, my senior year uh, of me with my mullet and all the other students under their photo Talk about what clubs and activities they were involved in for the four years of high school. But my senior year only talks about juggling. It's so ridiculous. I'm totally sending it to you. Please, please. i got the yearbook here. I want you to
0: so badly. And I I have to ask you about juggling real quick because you just touched on it. (laughs) But you were talking about juggling and attaching it to an idea. Now, I love, I love, all like any movie listeners uh, coming in here, uh, I, I like when I talk to Bain or Andy Williams or any of those guys, we didn't talk about movies the whole time, of course, and we will get to movies here, okay? But I have okay. to, <laughs> eventually, but I have to ask you about this because I'm fascinated by people being passionate about things. So even if right. I don't care about what it is or I don't maybe have... Uh, a personal attachment Like I don't have a personal attachment to juggling But I can also yep. acknowledge that I don't understand Any of the words that came out of your mouth Because I can't process them Because I don't know right <laughs> So I love learning I'm like a perpetual student So so teach me uh, Dear teacher And what, what's juggling How do you attach meaning Because all when I think of juggling let me just say this I'll, g- I'll give you my starter kit right here This is where I am uh, Like I'm thinking of street performer I'm thinking of your traditional uh typical clown, right? So when you say it, I'm like, there has to be more than this. And then now you just sit attaching ideas and talking between. Do you like this is what I imagine when you talk. You get hired to come be a juggler, but it's like watching a band, but they're just watching you juggle and talk between juggle tricks or whatever. <laughs> like, like I can't picture it. Like help me picture what you're doing okay. here.
1: His his Here's the easiest way to do it because every, every event that I've done over the years has certainly been very different. There's a guy in Seattle named John Wilson. John was my theater history and performance theory professor at Cornish College of the Arts and was uh, hugely influential on me throughout my life in terms of ideas, thoughts, books and whatnot. I used to joke, and it's not really a joke, it's true. I used to say that I'm 3% Greg, meaning I'm my own creation, 3%, and I'm an amalgam of my mom and John Wilson, 97%, everything, (laughs) my my voice, my mannerisms, everything, John and my mom. So John and I are still friends to this day. Uh, Years ago, we're walking around together talking about what have you, and John says to me, why do you think it is that people watch you juggle? And I was like, ah, oh, well, um, they think it's cool that I do these cool tricks and they're they're impressed and blah, blah, blah. And I mean this is like 20-something 20, 20 years ago. And John goes, no, that's not why. Come back tomorrow and tell me why people watch you juggle. So I'm like, OK. I go away. I come back the next day.
0: Classic like, teacher move. Classic totally. teacher move. Yeah.
1: Totally. He says like it's like some Zen master kind of thing, right? Yes. The next day he says, so why do people watch you juggle? And I said, well, it, I, I can do something that they can't do and and it's impressive. He's like, no, one more shot. Come back tomorrow. So I, I, the next day I come back to John and I was like, okay, I give up. I don't know why people watch me juggle. I literally don't know why. People watch me do the thing that they watch me do all the time. And John said, people watch you juggle because you are playing with elemental forces that control the bodies of the universe, and in fact, root us to the earth. The force of gravity is inescapable. It controls everything from our weight to the way the sun rises and sets, the moon in the sky and the tides. And you are playing with that as if it was a game. That fascination that you might be able to do such a thing, which seemingly is supernatural, who can control gravity? That's why people watch you juggle. Okay, insert insert emoji of the mind being blown here, right?
0: Or just look at me because my mind, I'm like sincerely (laughs) like blown away by this. You just gave meaning to the entire, uh, 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 I almost said hobby, but the entire like career of juggling right now. The
1: whole enterprise, the whole thing fell into place. So I started realizing that no matter what I say, There is an inherent fascination in the actual act and the observing. And this is like aside from performance, performer audience interaction and relationship, which could be a whole podcast, not just an episode, but the relationship between watching the juggling and then on an inherent root level, interpreting The relationship with gravity. Honestly, we'd go on all day and philosophize about this. But what I realized is that whatever I'm talking about, I could connect it to that act and people would feel or understand it viscerally. It was mind blowing. So that kind of changed the whole deal. Now, that doesn't mean that I come out on stage and I say, Hi, everybody, let's talk about your relationship with your weight and gravity. (laughs) It's not not (laughs) the way it goes down. But no matter what I'm talking about, like let's say I'm talking about creativity. There's something in the process of that act of, of juggling, which can be a, which not just a metaphor for it, but like this, this image that represents it. Well, I guess that's a metaphor. <laughs> but um, but it, it, uh, it, 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 it ties all back to John rooting all of it to having inherent meaning, if that makes sense.
0: It does, yeah. So what does it look like, though, when you go out there and juggle and tie it to meaning? Is the meaning the idea of gravity? Is that the meaning you're talking about, or, or like, how are you attaching meaning to that inerrant meaning?
1: You rule. That's a great question. So, you're catching me in a, in a weird moment in that for the past few years, I've and this could be a whole other thing. I've been working on a, a book on a cultural anthropologist writing a book, his official biography, a guy named Ernest
0: Becker. Yeah.
1: Uh, oh, we're getting there. The,
0: we're getting there. Okay.
1: Okay. So, <laughs> so the reason I'm saying you're catching me in a weird moment is that I've done tons less of the speaking, the juggling and whatnot, uh, in the last year and a half, because I've ramped up the amount that I've been uh, doing research in, in that time and, and working on the book. So I have a list of things that I want to do when the book is done. Like one of them is become an expert at Photoshop. One of them is, uh, you know, do this, do that, do this There's a whole list. I got to pull it up. But one of them is incorporate a new keynote, which indeed does talk about gravity and it would look like me coming on the stage talking about what is gravity what does it relate how does it relate to who we are what we do how do we perceive ourselves and how does this simple action of this ball flying back and forth how can that teach us about the relationship we have to gravity and weight and not just physical weight but the weight of being alive which is a whole other you know shenanigans we could get into the point is it would look like a talk just with visual imagery attached to it. Not like life goes up, life goes down. <laughs> not, <laughs> not like that. But to something a little a little deeper than that. But that's on the to-do list after – and I, well, I said Photoshop before. I'm actually getting away from Adobe because I think their idea of subscription-based apps is offensive. So I'm switching to Affinity Photo. That's my little pitch for Affinity Photo, <laughs> the underdog. But, um, but yeah. So anyway, point is it looks like and will look more like – uh, a, a, a speech and presentation that has an attached visual component, in the same way that if you watched a presentation with a video playing, it'll just be live motion video, and instead of a video playing, it'll be me throwing a machete back and forth.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, I'm just so blown away uh, that you just gave so much meaning to juggling. So you're like such a killer ju- It's like. I'm this close, okay. I'm showing my fingers to him, very close together. I'm this close to just being like, "Show me how to juggle right now." <laughs> <laughs> but that would not be that interesting. We'll say that for another time, because I, because <laughs> technically I have seen you juggle in the Beast Within, uh, a Gabriel uh, Knight uh, mystery. Or, um... interesting.
1: <clears throat> it's interesting you mentioned that because I was actually in that video game. <laughs> Amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Um, so you, you, uh, you're tackling gravity with juggling and, and, the meaning behind it, which is sincerely fascinating. I'm like, like you said, I feel like you and I could probably talk about any of these things for a full episode, but at what point did you start dealing with the realization that you're going to die? When did, <laughs> when did, when did Becker, uh, kind of come into your life? Cause you just brought up uh, writing a biography on him, yeah. Um, and <clears throat> you, uh, I believe you wrote and produced a documentary called "Flight from Death," which is also oh. heavily inspired by Becker, if I understand correctly. Yep. Uh, which I believe is on Amazon Prime right now. You can just watch it, it is. right now. I yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, what led what led to Becker? How, how did you land there?
1: You know, it's interesting. My my visceral gut reaction of oh god when you ask me that question is because. 10 minutes ago, you were talking and I don't remember exactly what you were saying in the moment and I was listening to you, but I was thinking about, it might've been when you mentioned your mom, to be totally honest, because you said when she was alive and I thought, oh, I didn't realize that your mom had passed away. Yeah, There was a moment where I thought yeah. to myself, this rules, meaning you and me connecting here right now, because yes. listeners don't know that you and I don't talk all the time. This is the first time we've Skyped, right? This is one of our first conversations in live action. right? Right.
0: We talked for maybe half an hour at the show, like three years ago, and I've texted you maybe 10 times in the last month to set this up. Like that's literally our only interaction. Maybe some likes and Facebook comments. That's about it.
1: That's right. So you were talking 10 minutes ago and my mind flashed for a second to this rules. I never want this to end. Meaning my friendship with you, but also my friendships, the, talks, the experience of like wondering what DVDs are on your shelf, the fascination with the fact that you like the DVDs or the books or video games that are on your shelf. We all want this to perpetuate. I want this to perpetuate. We want this to keep going. And in an instant, I was like, oh, my God, we've got to celebrate this while it's happening because this all goes away eventually. OK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Time, this is
0: where the this is where we take the you know express trip to Bummerville because we're getting yeah. into Becker.
1: <laughs> so, this is where this is where it all came from. I, um, what people don't know about me, other than the fact that I was in the beast within Gabriel Knight, too, is that <laughs> I, um, I know more about rare coins <laughs> and <laughs> coin collecting than anyone you know in your life. I say that categorically, unquestionably as fact, okay? And I'm laughing as I say it because I know that that sounds as ridiculous as the fact that I would throw a machete back and forth while quote-unquote juggling all day.
0: Just facts. Well, we're just tacking more Um, and more interesting things onto the list of mimes and juggling and games. And so, yeah, so you love coins. Okay,
1: like to the point where I can say to you, if you took the cumulative knowledge of hardcore that's in my brain and the cumulative knowledge of juggling and speaking and whatnot, it pales in comparison to my knowledge of coins, rare coins and coin collect. It's ridiculous. OK. It started when I was seven with an obsession that I inherited from my dad and inherited meaning like he was into coins as a kid and he mentioned it to me and it just, I just went just berserk with it. And the reason that I never talk about it – I don't even know if I've talked about it in interviews – is because in the 90s when I was living with Cynthia and I was touring quote-unquote often, I thought to myself, even though I don't keep coins at the house, I thought if people know I'm on tour and they've heard me talk about coins, maybe they'll come and try to break in and steal said coins while I'm gone and that puts Cynthia in danger so I'm never going to talk about coins. Okay, so I never really have. Why do I bring up coins, which I could literally talk to you about nonstop for weeks and weeks and weeks and never repeat myself twice. And you die of boredom within the first hour. You're shaking You your head
0: underestimate now. me, dear sir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I bring it up because here's little Greg. He's about 10 years old, 11 years old, collecting his coins. right? And I'm sitting around and I'm looking with fascination at coins, which represent to me permanence in a way, because they're um, they're made out of metal oftentimes, uh, most often. They are dated. So you know that this thing sitting in front of me was made in 1870. It's still sitting here in my hand, even though everything else from 1870 is dead. But this coin has survived. And I thought about the permanence of these coins and how much I cherish them. And then I thought, I remember where I was sitting when I thought this in my parents' place in in Woodbury, Connecticut. I thought, as I looked at this coin in front of me, what happens to this thing when I die? And I realized someone else someday will own this coin long after Greg is gone and they'll be reflecting on how that coin represents permanence. But I'll be the thing that was impermanent. Okay, well, that ruined summer vacation, right? At that point, uh, <laughs> like, yeah. now what happens? So, uh, now what happens? And I just realized, like, this is this is not a good situation. Like, I'm not a permanent creature. So that was on my mind forever and a day.
0: And when was this? Around that, estimated. I, like, like, it was probably, let's just call
1: it the mid 80s. Like, I might have okay, been, okay. I, you know, I, I said 10, but I might have been like 13, maybe 12. No, actually, you know what? I'm going with 10. I'm going with about oh, 10 okay. years old. Okay. So, yeah, yeah this is back
0: probably 80s. Or like, yeah, when some, I was a
1: kid. When okay. I was a kid. Yeah. Okay. Fast forward with this idea in mind, which is not unique to me. I mean, people realize that they are going to die. I guess, you know, child psychologists say kids realize that, you know, when they're young, really young, three, four, five, that, you know, there is a thing called death in the world. They just don't fully grasp it yet. But I held on to this throughout my life. Graduation day from Cornish College of the Arts, 1994, John Wilson, aforementioned Zen master of the intellect, walks up to me and says, uh, hey, I've got something for you. And he hands me three books, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, Uh, Otto Ronck's Art and Artist and Man's Search for Meaning um, by Viktor Frankl. And I take these books and I do what anyone does. When someone hands you a book, you put it on your shelf to read later. Well, um, John saw me a year later. He said, how are you doing with those books I gave you? I said, well, you know, (laughs) and he looked at me and he said, you're scared of those guys, aren't you? that's all he said. It made me so up, upset and frustrated that he told me I was scared of these guys, that I said, okay, I'm going to read these books. So I started with uh, Man's Search for Meaning by, by Viktor Frankl. I read it. It was mind-blowing. It eventually became the song When There's Nothing Left to Lose by Trial years later. Uh, that was the the huge motivation for the song. Um, and I tried to read Art and Artist by Otto Ronk. It's an extraordinarily difficult book to read. And my my copy is actually here sitting right next to me. And I write on the inside cover of books that I read the date that I start reading the book. And you can see from my notes that it says 1997, then that's crossed out. It says 2000, that's crossed out. And over the years, up until a year ago, when I finally read this thing. But then I read The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And that book really struck me. I read it while I was on tour with Trial at one point. And that was, that was the game changer. Not that it's life canon, right? Not that it's a Bible. It's just a really interesting book and offers some interesting perspectives on, on death and our relationship to it. So that's when that all happened. It started with John Wilson and then John and I having conversations about it over the years, reading the book. Um, that's where it all developed from there.
0: Wow. Okay. So when, when did you start... Hold on, I'm actually just going to look this up instead of asking you. Okay, so you, you did uh, Flight from Death, though, in 2003. So you'd already mm-hmm. been into Becker for... Uh, late 90s, like, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. the late 90s, yeah. <clears throat> okay. So, so you know, we'll say five, six years prior to making this film. Uh, what led to you, like, thinking about Becker and 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 all of these, like... Philosophical existential ideas, and then wanting to put them into essentially a documentary, the Flight from Death documentary in two thousand three. Sure. What was the journey there?
1: Okay, so here's here's how this happened. So I I read read the Becker book, and I'd incorporated as I was reading it some of his ideas into lyrical ideas and whatnot. I get home from that tour. And I look up on whatever search engine existed back then, Alta Vista or whatever, Ernest Becker. I found that there was an Ernest Becker Foundation in Seattle. I was like, what the heck? I live in the city where they study these ideas. I wrote to them and I said, my name is Greg Bennick. I'm in this punk band. I'm interested in Becker's ideas. Um, who could I talk to about Becker's ideas? And they wrote me back and they said, well, why don't you come to our conference? It's coming up in a month or whatever in Seattle. I was like, oh my God, whole Becker conference. So I go to this conference with the aforementioned fish yeah. fan, Cynthia. We get to the conference. We're sitting in the back of the room. There's all these academics standing up, delivering papers and talking and whatnot. And I uh, am just sitting there. Well, uh, the elderly director of the foundation, this guy named Neil LG, who just this last year passed away, Neil LG stands up in front of the group and thanks the previous speaker, whoever that was, I don't r- quite remember, for giving a presentation about the academic side of Becker. And he looks at the room and he says, thank you so much for that presentation. Is Greg Benick here? And I remember I turned to my my girlfriend, I turned to Cynthia and I was like, what? And he says it again, is Greg Benick here? And Cynthia hits my arm and she's like, he said your name, raise your hand. I'm like, uh, so I raise my hand and Neil goes, Greg, why don't you come up here and tell us about your punk rock band?
0: Holy shit. Why? <laughs>
1: <laughs> because he'd gotten the email, which yeah. said I'm interested in Becker's ideas. So I'm like, why, though? You're right. Why am I going to stand in front of this room of academics? So I walk to the front of the room. I look. I turn around at the podium. I'm looking out at a room of, of PhDs and professors and whatnot. And I thought to myself, oh, my God. So I said, my name is Greg Bennick. I recently read The Denial of Death. I've been working on some new lyrics. I want to um, tell you about them. And, uh, and I've been influenced by Becker for a while and blah, blah, blah. And I said, let me recite to you some lyrics that I've written that have been inspired by Becker's work. And uh, if you're interested, I can, I can send you a, a CD when it's available of, of this song that I'm working on. And I said to them, uh, the wreckage of humanity has been strewn across the land, and now the hour of desperation is at hand. And I recited the lyrics to Trial's song Reflections. And at the end, the last lines of which are deeply inspired by Becker's ideas, you know, the idea that we want something more amidst the, um, the, the, the chaos of existence, I get to the last line of the song, just reciting it, and we want something more. And I said, if anyone's interested, please hand me a business card. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, these people are going to, like, crucify me. I'm not going to make it out of here alive. I had 14 business cards in my hand by the time I sat back down next to Cynthia, like literally in the room. People are handing them out to the aisles. I want your CD when it comes. I want your CD. I want your CD. And from that moment started an interaction between me and people who are far more academic intelligent well read well versed in philosophy psychology religion anthropology theology ontology all theologies that's when it started it was like late late 90s right when the trial cd came out and or the trial record, as it were, but it came out on CD. And I remember getting my hands on tons of these CDs and sending sending them out to college professors around the United States. That was the first round. I, I sent one to my, my parents, my brother, and all these professors who specialized in Becker's work. So that's where it rolled from, was that initial day where I was called in front of the audience by Neil L. G., this you know patriarch, as it were, of the Ernest Becker Foundation.
0: That's like both the coolest and scariest story I've ever <laughs> heard because there is that growing fear of like being somewhere where you know, the person speaking, which you didn't in this case, which even makes it worse, but maybe you know someone and then they call you up for an impromptu speech, which I might be fairly skilled. Like I might be able to do that. Maybe like, okay. So my, my grandma, uh, not, I mean, we're already in Bummerville, I guess. So, cause we're going to be talking about death. So my grandma died um, the end of October. Okay. She's died Mm. from COVID complications. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So, uh, I appreciate it. Um, so I show up and my grandpa asks me like an hour before the service, Hey, would you say something? Would you go up there with me and say something? So of course, I mean, there's really no risk here. I know most of the people that are going to be there. Uh, you know, uh, it's I'm not worried about it, but you know, my mind starts kind of working though. And and you still, no matter how skilled you are, you get a certain level of anxiety about it because you, you – like, now it's on, right? Like, it's a thing that you've agreed to. There is kind of a social contract there now. In my case, there was a familial contract that I've, like, kind of made – and so I'm going to do this thing. Now, of course, it was fine. Like I didn't, ha- I didn't bother me. But there were. T- it's like being in class and your teacher calls on you and says, "Hey, why don't you tell us about these ideas?" I took a media law class in my undergrad. It's the hardest class in the whole department because uh, I was studying film then, and uh, the average grade was a C. Most people fail out of it and take it more than once. It was just uh notorious, like infamous rather for for being the hardest class uh because it there's a lot of law involved you have to understand like the legal aspects of filmmaking and copywriting and trademarking and infringements and blah 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 uh I took this class three times okay <laughs> okay um, <laughs> I was not a great undergrad okay grad school is a different story, but the undergrad part not great um so anyways uh but <clears throat> the first time I took it, I took it with the quote unquote good professor right the other one was mm-hmm. an excellent professor but he was a lawyer and he was a hard ass and he will yell at you and cuss at you and throw you out if you didn't read something Like he was that guy so um there was umansky that was him but i had the other guy the first time and i was stoked dude but the problem is he would have note cards with every person's name on it and if no one raised their hand to answer a question he would walk up to the front row fan them out and say pull one And then he would call upon the person and say, all right, if you read this, tell us about this, like, if you've read it, very clear thing to tell us about. So, of course, when I get called the one time, luckily only once in the semester, I'm like, you know, I just, I don't remember that part. And then when I like went back to read it for a test, I'm like, oh shit, that's like the whole thing. I should, (laughs) like I totally outed myself. So my point is, I can't imagine how stressful it was that you're going here to like try to understand this thing. You're in front of all these people smarter than you. I've presented at conferences and I'm like, I'm a grad student. At one point, I mean, I, I went to a conference when I was an undergrad too. And I'm like, I'm gonna talk about like Kubrick's The Shining. And I'm like, there are like 30 people in here that know vastly more than I do. Like there, if you ask me a question, I can't answer it. So please don't, (laughs) you know, like, it's like, just let me get my spiel out and you know, you can go. So I can't even imagine what it's like getting in front of a room of what I at least imagine is like hundreds of academics. You know what I mean? How how many people were there? Would you say? There might've been,
1: I'd say about a hundred, 120, but you know, I've, I've, I've definitely had that situation happen. Uh, I showed Flight from Death, the documentary. I mean, I've showed it around the world, but I showed it in London at uh, a college in London to their philosophy department at one point when I was on a tour. And it was a room full of philosophy PhD students. And again, I don't have an advanced degree, right? I barely made it through Cornish College of the Arts. I don't have an advanced degree. I show this film on Becker's work. I get done and we had an hour and a half or so set aside for Q&A or an hour set aside for Q&A. And the first person raises his hand and he says, in your film, there is a quote by Jean Paul Sartre, yet a less Sartian film. I am uninclined to find comments. And I thought, I'm dead. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to survive this hour. I don't even understand the goddamn question. So that's that has played itself out a hundred times over the years, a thousand times. Um, but I think that, you know, in those moments, again, like we were talking about before about connecting with the audience, I think you can connect with the audience as best you possibly can and hope that they're going to be um, willing to connect too. Because remember, it's a relationship, right? So even if... The topic is um, uh, video games and movies and hardcore to hardcore kids and you walk out on stage and say, hey, I want to talk to you about all these games I bought this year and movies and you're all hardcore kids and I'm a hardcore kid. If they're not willing to be in the relationship, you're going to have a really hard time. That's true of our personal relationships too, right? So, you know, it's it, you've got to be, you're in it or you're out of it. And if they're in it, then you can make that connection happen.
0: Very excited to talk to Greg Bennett again sometime in the future. Again, uh, if it's ne- if it's not next week, it'll probably be the following week. But I'm going to do a replay of part two uh, of the Greg Bennett conversation I had. Uh, man, he's just such an interesting guy. And again, you know, a lot of these replays I've been doing aren't even really heavy film conversations. You know, these are just interesting people I had the privilege of talking to. Um, and I just, I just adore it so much. Uh, I love doing this podcast, and I can't wait to get a whole bunch more, uh, you know, new stuff. The problem with not having these long form conversations with people like Joe and Jake and JB and Matt Sosie and all those guys is when I watch, when I watch stuff to talk with Joe, I watch one or two movies that week, and then if I fit others in, I do little short reviews beforehand, right? Uh, but for this, for the 2021 cram, I'm trying to find movies that I want to watch that are available to me that I have enough time to do notes for, and I have to have enough to do a whole episode. And that's a very different beast. Uh, so, uh, that's why I'm kind of taking a little bit more time. I want the content to be better. And so, um, all that to say, thank you for being patient. I love you guys so much. Uh, you know, good night, good luck, and take it easy.